said before last week what we did in our introduction to this book of 3 John is we gave something of a sermonic overview of the entire book. And what I tried to do last week was to locate what I believe and what I think is pretty much recognized, the center of the book itself. And that is John's intention to write to this man Gaius, the beloved Gaius as we've seen, to write to this man Gaius to, to encourage him to continue to show the hospitality that he has been showing in the past. As a matter of fact, Gaius was somewhat well-known for his hospitality. He was known as that individual who, whenever a man would be going by with the work of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that man would be accepted in Gaius' home. And so again, what John is writing, he is writing to Gaius to say, listen, continue this work. It was a very sad reason why John had to write this encouragement to Gaius, because opposite to Gaius was this man, Diotrephes. And Diotrephes was that man who, rather than showing this grace of Christian hospitality, was not showing those who, because of their orthodoxy and because of their piety, should have received hospitality from Christians. Rather, this man Diotrephes, for whatever reason, and we'll get into that in weeks to come, this man Diotrephes was not extending that hospitality. So John writes to encourage uh, Gaius in this practice. But the other thing that we saw last week was when we read the, the book of 3 John and we, when, we, when we observe it, when we analyze it, one of the things that we see over and over again is the concept of truth. Over and over again. Matter of fact, in the passage that we'll really be focusing on this morning, verses 1 through 8, the word truth occurs five times. And so there is a sense in which truth is very much to the, in the very substance and structure of the letter. And last time we were together, not only we we used the idea of truth as something as the sermonic outline. And we talked about the writer of the epistle, John. Remember we said that John was the man through whom truth was delivered. Then we took a look at, uh, at Gaius and we said that Gaius was that man who supported the truth. Then we took a look at the itinerant preachers and we said they were those who propagated the truth. Then we saw Diotrephes, you remember. He was the man who hindered the truth. Diotrephes is kind of interesting because we don't see him, we don't see attributed to him uh, some of the more severe uh, uh, terms that John uses in 1 John when he talks about those who deny the the reality of the incarnation of Christ and his deity. John refers to them as antichrist. Remember, uh, John doesn't use that in in regard to Diotrephes. So we have to examine that. We'll do that, as I said, in weeks to come. So Diotrephes was that man who hindered the truth. We also saw that uh, Demetrius was that man in whom the truth was exemplified. What a wonderful man Demetrius will be to take a look at. He was that man, you remember, with that threefold witness. The church witnessed of him, the scripture itself witnessed to him, and even John the Apostle witnessed to him. So what we saw in that man Demetrius was this man who really, again, the truth sounded out from him. The truth really validated his who, who and what he was. But what I want to do this morning is I want to come back to this man, Gaius, the beloved Gaius. And this is one of the things that we see about Gaius. Over and over again, he's referred to the beloved Gaius, and we'll see shortly why he's referred to that way. But I also want to interact with Gaius by way of the concept of the truth once again. As I said before, we really can't get away from it. One of the things that I said last week, just in a very short summary fashion, was that Whenever we ask the question of what is truth, that's really sometimes a very difficult answer for the world to answer. Excuse me, that's a very difficult question for the world to answer. And the reason why it's a difficult answer, uh, question for the world to answer is because the world is without an ultimate standard of right or wrong. 
The world has divorced itself from the ultimate reality of God himself. And so long as the world divorces itself from God, it will always be seeking for an answer for which they will not be able to find unless they come to the realization that in God himself, God is the ground not only of all being, God is the ground of truth as well. I often think to myself that the world has kind of realized that it is looking for a needle in the haystack and it sets about that search, but what it has done after it realized that it is looking for the needle in the haystack, it has purposely turned off the light. That's what the world has done when it has rejected the light of Jesus Christ, when it has rejected the fact that God is the source and the ground of all truth. So I talked about last week this idea that truth is that which corresponds to reality. This is something that most people will kind of agree with. That God is the ultimate reality is, again, truth itself. And that everything that, and that everything that corresponds to the nature and the will of God, in that sense, is a reflection of truth. But today I want to go a little further than that in our understanding of truth. And what I want you to see first and foremost is why I'm making this emphasis. Look here at verses uh, 1 and following. Notice what, again, John says. The elder unto the well-beloved guys whom I love in the truth. Look here in verse 3. I rejoice greatly when the, when the brethren came and testified of the truth that is in thee, even as thou walkest in the truth. Of course, verse 4. I have no greater joy than to hear my children walk in the truth. Look here again in verse 8. We therefore ought to receive such that we might be fellow helpers to the truth. The truth, we can't get away from it. And so one of the things that we have to do is we have to begin to get a grasp. How can we best understand truth? Well, let me say this. Whatever the world may be in ignorance of, the scriptures certainly are not. The scriptures over and over again emphasize the fact that truth is a reality, that truth indeed can be known, that truth can be received, that truth can be participated in, and that truth can be expressed in and through the life. And what we see, as I said over and over again, is this fundamental reality that God himself is truth and the source of all truth. A number of passages of scripture bring this out. Passages of scripture that really set before us the nature of God. In Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 4, we read this. He is a rock. His work is perfect for all of his ways are judgment. A God of truth without, without iniquity, just and right is he. A God of truth. <clears throat> Again, this is, a, this is a fairly common designation for God himself. He is the God of truth. In Psalm 31, verse 5, a psalm which is quoted by our Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. But first, again, recorded for us in Psalm 31. We read this, Into thine hand I commit, I commit my spirit. Listen to what the psalmist goes on to say. Thou hast redeemed me, O Lord God of truth. Thou hast redeemed me, O Lord of God of truth. Who is the God that redeems? It is the God of truth. In Isaiah 65, verse 16, that phrase, that designation as God is the God of truth occurs twice in that one verse. Isaiah, Isaiah 65, verse 16. That he who blesses himself in the earth shall bless himself in the God of truth. And he, that re, and he that sweareth in the earth shall swear by the God of truth. And again, the idea here, God is designated as the God of truth. Now, what am I trying to say here? What do I believe that the scriptures are teaching us here? It's essentially this. When we speak of truth in the absolute sense, 
It is that which is in God and that which comes from God. He, as I said before, is the ground of all truth and being. For anything to be true in the ultimate sense, it must conform to him as the ultimate reality. So again, God defines for us what truth is. He is truth himself. Now, of course, as we go on to understand the scriptures, we see that this idea of truth isn't just located in the Father, if I can put it that way. It is located in the divine being, in the fullness of the divine being. And it's because of that then we see our Lord Jesus Christ taking up this idea and saying in John chapter 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. This idea that Jesus Christ is truth incarnate. Let's go back to that very basic definition that I gave, that very basic statement, that truth is that which corresponds to reality. You see, this is in the way in which Jesus Christ is ultimate truth. If God is ultimately what reality is all about. If God is the ultimate reality, then Jesus Christ in the incarnation corresponds most perfectly to that which God is. And so in that, he becomes the manifestation of truth. He is truth incarnate. We see this in another passage of scripture. And again, it's taken uh, in, in 1 John. 1 John chapter 5, verse 20 reads as follows. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God in eternal life. You see, truth is all bound up in the being of God. Truth is made manifest for us in the person of Jesus Christ. And so, as I said before, the world may ask questions, what is truth? Put on the lips of Pilate, what is truth? But put on the lips of a saint of God. When the question is asked, what is truth? We look to God himself. When the question is asked, what is truth? We look to the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And so it shouldn't be surprising now when I, when I add a little more information here. Not only is God himself in, his, in the totality of his being the ground of truth, we see the Lord Jesus Christ as the manifestation of truth. Well, it should not surprise you that we see the Holy Spirit as well as truth. And I don't mean just as he who testifies to the truth. And that, in one sense, is his primary function. But the Spirit of God himself is called the truth. Listen to what we have here. <clears throat> Again, in 1 John chapter 5, verse 6. And what I want you to see here, have you noticed how many times we've been back and forth in the writings and the epistles of John? You see, John is very much taken up with this idea of truth. You see, for, 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 for John, truth is not only propositional facts. The fact that Jesus Christ died on the cross Truth is also personal in the sense that it's all bound up in the being of God and of Christ. But listen to what the John says in 1 John chapter 5, uh, verse 6. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by water only, but by water and the blood. And this is the point, this is the point in the passage I want you to give attention to. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth doesn't say here that the spirit testifies of the truth that's true but here we see specifically the spirit is the truth so when we say that god is the ground of all truth you see why we say that he is the ultimate reality jesus christ is the manifestation of god is that which most perfectly corresponds to what that which is ultimate reality the spirit of god himself is truth and so again we see this great and this heavy emphasis on truth now again, this is not the only thing that we see when we look in the scriptures concerning uh, the idea of truth. Uh, one of the things that we should be very much aware of, and this is what we proclaim. And again, I want to encourage you, if I can put it this way, to never have shaken from your convictions 
the fact that the gospel is the truth as well. Now, again, in our day, we're challenged with that because in our day, individuals want to kind of segregate religious truth apart from truth in however they may define it. But we adhere to the biblical point and the biblical principle that since God is the ultimate reality, everything that claims to be truth must correspond to who he is and what he wills. And in that regard, the gospel is the truth because the gospel is the will of God to men as to how they might be right with God. And we see this in a number of places. Again, Paul says, <clears throat> we see this in a, in, in a number of places. We see that the Christian faith as a whole is opposed to, to any kind or is, is opposed to any kind of idea or any kind of presentation of truth that may come from any quarter that does not submit itself to the ultimate lordship of Jesus Christ. And this is true whether it be quote-unquote scientific truth, this is true whether it be philosophical truth, this is true, this is true whether it be quote-unquote uh, religious truth. Listen to the passages of Scripture that guide us in this, re- in this regard. Paul says this in 1 in Timothy chapter 6, verse 20, O Timothy, keep that which is committed to thy trust, avoiding profane and vain babblings and oppositions of science, or the, the ESV says knowledge, falsely so-called. Now, so again, what we're seeing here isn't so much this this kind of attack on science as a discipline, but what it is arguing against is science as it makes unfounded proclamations apart from the reality of who God is. There is a sense in which naturalistic naturalistic science has divorced itself from the reality and being of God and then is now taken to make pronouncements on ultimate reality. And the church of Jesus Christ says, no, the scientific method is a useful method. And the scientific method indeed can be helpful so long as we understand that ultimate reality resides in the being of God. And this is where so-called science and, and faith oftentimes comes into conflict. And it's not because science has this real um, uh, hand up on, on faith. It's not that at all. But it's the fact that science oftentimes has closed, willfully closed its eyes to the reality of God and sought in materialistic and naturalistic forces an explanation for that which ultimately is. That is the province of God himself. God is the ground of all truth and being. And the, tr- and, and the church declares this. The word of God declares this. And again, it may... It, it may uh, raise our eyebrows at times, but this is what the Word of God declares. And so again, there's, there's, if we can put it this way, there's signs in the true sense of the word, and there's signs falsely so-called. Paul warns against it. Secondly, from a philosophical point of view, and again, ph- uh, philosophy is very much involved with the idea of truth, isn't it? Uh, again, as I said before, when I said to you that truth is that which corresponds to reality, philosophically, I don't think you'll run into much uh, static if you would say that in the presence of philosophically minded people. The idea that truth is that which corresponds to reality. And the scripture recognizes that. The scripture recognizes that what is true is that which is according to fact. As I said last week, this week it happens to be 1035 when I'm making this statement. Last week, for whatever reason why I remember, it was 1027 when I said you are here on a Sunday morning gathered to worship Jesus Christ. That's a true fact. If you said to your friend, why well, was at the market at 1035, that would not be true. That would not correspond to reality. So the idea of truth is that which corresponds to reality. Philosophically, is fair enough. 
What we are saying is this, though, this, this, uh, that God being the ultimate reality, truth must ultimately correspond to his nature and to his will. But even philosophically, we read this. Paul warns us as follows in, in uh, Colossians chapter 2. Beware lest any man spoil you through, through philosophy and vain deceit after the traditions of men and after the rudiments of the world and not after Christ. Why does he say not after Christ? Because Christ again becomes the standard of truth. He is that which most perfectly corresponds to the reality of who God is. He is God manifest in the flesh. And so again, what we are seeing here is that there is this real reality called truth and truth is made known in and through the person of Christ and it's, and, and it's, and it's contained for us and it's, and it's summary form in what we call Christian doctrine. Even religiously, we see this Acts chapter 17, verses 22 and 23. You know the passage from Acts 17. Again, this is taken from the uh, ESV. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and I observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim unto you. You see, where religion says we don't know. And isn't it, I almost, I'm going to kind of get off to the side. It's, it's always a strange thing that in philosophical issues and in religious issues, there seems to be this primacy on saying, well, we really don't know. That's not what the Bible does. That's not what Paul did. Paul says, what you ignorantly worship, I'm going to tell you. And what he reveals is that ultimate reality that all men have sinned before God and that in the person of Jesus Christ, those same individuals can have forgiveness of sins. Why? Because in the ultimate sense, there is coming a day in which he will judge the hearts and the thoughts of all persons through Jesus Christ. Ultimate issues, ultimate reality. You don't just die and go into the ground. You don't just turn into dust. Matter of fact, I think we quoted last week, um, maybe, maybe we didn't quote this last week, but we'll be looking at it next week, uh, that passage of Scripture from Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 7. The, the, the body returns to the dust, but the spirit returns on the God who gave it. There is a day of reckoning for every soul, every person. There will be that day when ultimately things must be addressed. And so we see truth in the being of God. We see truth and revealed in, in, in what we call the Christian faith. We see truth revealed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as a matter of fact, it's called the gospel of truth. In Galatians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, that because of the false brethren unawares brought in, who came in privily to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ, that they might bring us in the bondage, to whom we gave no place by subjection. No, not for an hour, that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. The truth of the gospel. You see, the truth of the gospel stands in an environment in which it can be undermined. And if you remember when we talked about those itinerant preachers last week, and you remember how that in 2 John, John says to um, uh, the, the, the beloved lady in, in 2 John, the, excuse me, to the elect lady in 2 John, that there were those who were not to be welcomed into the home. And essentially, those individuals were those who were denying the truth about Jesus Christ. Those who said that Jesus Christ was not coming in the flesh. And so if their doctrine was out of sorts, and if in their personal life there was not the piety that was commensurable with true uh, Christian doctrine, they were not to be received as such. And so there was a qualification even for the hospitality that is very important that we'll get to here shortly. So this idea, the truth of the gospel. 
Isn't it something over and over again in the Word of God what we find is this emphasis on a body of truth, this body of doctrine known as the faith. You know, Jude speaks of it as the faith that was once delivered to the saints. Paul says in Romans chapter 6, you believe that form of doctrine which was delivered unto you. What what is he referring to there? He's referring to the substance and the essence of, of saving Christian knowledge. He's referring to that grand truth that God sent his son into the world to save sinners. That God sent his son into the world for you and for me. And that there's not one of you outside of the hearing my voice right now that you cannot apply that passage of scripture to yourself. There are mysteries of the ways of God by way of his ultimate purpose, by way of his, uh, by way of his design and purpose and, and determination of things. But when the gospel is, is proclaimed, all of those who are under the hearing of the gospel have every right to take God at his word. You have the right to do this no matter what your spiritual state is right now. You may be outside of Jesus Christ. You may be inside of you know, you may be in Jesus Christ. You may be outside of the saving purposes of God. You may be at the center of God's saving purposes. I'm saying to you though, the truth of God in the gospel is essentially this that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. And so long as the sinner is willing to recognize the truth that he or she is a sinner, the truth of the gospel is for them. The problem in our day is that is, is the problem in our day is that in many cases. The truth that a person is a sinner is a very hushed truth. Don't say that. Don't call him a sinner. How can the gospel go to how can the gospel go to those who need it if we don't if we don't declare what the scriptures declare? And so again, this idea of the truth. And so when John says to Gaius, the elder, to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in the truth, you understand what he's saying now. In the whole spectrum of this great act of who and what God is, in the whole spectrum of God revealing himself in the scripture, in the whole spectrum of the individual not only hearing about the truth, but able come to a personal embrace of the truth, John says to Gaius, beloved whom I love in the truth. And that brings us now to Gaius. And what we see, as I said before, that Gaius is this man who's beloved. What a wonderful designation uh, given to Gaius here. And what we're seeing here is that it's, in one sense, it's really Gaius' relation to the truth that causes John to use this designation as beloved. Now, as I said before, when we, when we look at Paul, Paul uses beloved quite a bit. I think I mentioned last week in the book of James, I, I think if my memory serves me right, I think about 16 times in the book of James, James uses the term beloved. He uses it, uh, again, it's very, very interesting to see how James interacts with all of that. John uses the word beloved over and over again. But here, especially in John, Gaius is beloved because of his relationship to the truth. And if I can say this about Gaius and the truth is essentially this. Gaius was an object of affection on the part of the apostle John because of his relation to the truth. And can I make this application? Isn't there something in those brothers and sisters that we know and experience who are genuine children of God, who in their lives is something appealing, who in their lives is something sweet, who in their lives is something just so in keeping with everything that they claim that there is an attraction to their person. Isn't it a disappointing thing when our commitment to truth makes us very hard and harsh 
Wouldn't it be a better thing if our commitment to the truth made us, a, made us an object of affection by those people of God who know and understand the truth? Not that we don't defend the truth and fight the truth. We'll get to that. We must. But all oh, the, the effects of the truth in the life to the, the, the elder, to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in the truth. Well, not only was Gaius a, an object of affection uh, because of his relation to the, uh, to the truth on the part of the Apostle John, Gaius was also an object of affection to the church as a whole because of his relation to the truth. You see, his relation to the truth was so wholehearted and so full-orbed that, as I said last week, that guy was a blessing to everybody that he was around. When we read in verse 6, I believe it is, what we see here is that when, when, when those itinerant preachers went back to John, who were, they, <clears throat> who were they talking about? Yeah, Gaius, the guy's great. The guy gave us everything that we needed. There we were on our, on our journey, and he made sure that this was taken care of, and that was taken care of, and this was taken care of. And so because of John's commitment to the truth, he became an object of affection to the entire church. There's nothing that prohibits every one of us from being that kind of a guy, if I can put it that way. That our commitment to the church, excuse me, our commitment to the truth would be such a blessing to the church of Jesus Christ that we would be or you would be the object of all of our affections, you see? But there's one more element of, of Gaius' commitment to the truth <clears throat> that really is the basis for everything. Gaius was beloved because of his commitment to the truth that is the person of Jesus Christ. What does Paul say in Ephesians 1? We have been made accepted in the beloved. Gaius was the beloved ultimately because he was in the beloved. You are the beloved of God ultimately because you are in the beloved. And so here we see this whole relationship to truth is spanning the spectrum of truth. It's truth by way of practice. It's truth by way of understanding the doctrinal realities that, that are laid out here. But it's also truth by way of the embrace of Jesus Christ by faith. And so you see, Gaius is this beloved man because of his relationship to the truth. Oh, how do we stand? How do you stand? How do I stand in relation to the truth? You see, has the truth affected my life so much where, where somebody can save me? I love that brother in the truth. I love that sister in the truth. You know what I mean? Whatever else she may be or may not be, she's committed to the truth of God. And because of that, she's the one I want to be around. He's the one I want to be around. That's the congregation I want to be around. You see, this commitment to the truth affects who and what we are. And if that was true in the early church, it's true today as well. As I said, there is a sense in which we get a glimpse into the, into the life of the early church in this little epistle. But what we see when we look in the life of the early church, we see it looks a whole lot like ours today. Maybe some things are uh, uh, exaggerated in some sense by way of wrongdoing. Maybe some other things that we're seeing some consistency with. But the basic stuff of the life of the church is here on these pages. And so again, Gaius and his relation to the truth. The other thing that we see by way of Gaius and his relation to the truth is that he both internalized the truth and externalized the truth. And when I say the word externalize, I had to make sure that I wasn't making up a word. You know, sometimes, sometimes you think you're making you're, that, that's not even a word. Externalize is a word. It means to put into being or to put into practice some principle. And that's what guys does. But the first thing that he did is that he internalized the word. Did you see that passage of scripture? Uh, where it says here, uh, here in, um, in, in verse uh, 
in verse, uh, and I'm sorry for this, that we see here in, uh, well, let's start with verse 5. I'm sorry, verse 3. This is the verse I'm looking for. Uh, for I rejoice greatly when the brethren came and testified of the truth that is in thee. The truth that is in thee. This is phenomenal. Because truth for Gaius was not just an idea that hung out there. Truth for Gaius wasn't just an idea that kind of every now and then he touched. That maybe a couple times during the day he kind of got it right. Truth was internalized by Gaius. And this is phenomenal. Because one of the things that we have to understand about truth is this. Truth is never merely intellectual, but it is never less than intellectual. Truth is that which pervades the whole life. Truth gets in us and flows from us. That's why Demetrius had the witness of the truth. Because his life was in conformity. His life corresponded to what the word of God commanded. And this is true of of Gaius as well. Here was a man who internalized the truth. And again, in in this we have to see all those, again, uh, structures doctrinally by way of the truth of who Jesus is. You look at 1 John, it's all about an exposition of, of 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 the reality of the person of Christ. Why do you think when John opens up 1 John, he says, that which we have seen with our eyes, which we have heard with our ears, which we have handled with our hands, the word of life. He is saying that Jesus Christ was a real person. He wasn't a phantom. He wasn't just some kind of spirit come down. He was a real, true person. And a case is being made for who Jesus Christ is. If I can use this word ontologically. He is, in truth, man. He is, in truth, the incarnate God. Phenomenal. And so Gaius is embracing all this. That's the truth. Gaius is embracing all that. So he's internalizing this. This is impacting the way that he lives. But we also see here that Gaius externalizes the truth as well. And what do we mean by that? Well, this brings us to the whole idea of this hospitality that we were speaking about. Notice again in verse 3, where John says this. Um... I rejoice greatly for when the brethren came and testified of the truth that is in thee, even as thou walkest in the truth. Now again, this is, again, that word walk, you know, it's comprehensive. It speaks about the whole course of the individual's life. So that Gaius wasn't that man who on Sunday walked according to the truth, and then on Monday through Saturday, watch out. Gaius was that man in who in his whole course of living was exactly what he claimed to be by way, of a, by way of personal allegiance to the person and to the teaching of Jesus Christ. You see, he, 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 it, it manifested, it flowed from him. But the way that this truth manifests itself or externalizes itself in Gaius is the focus now that I want to make by way of hospitality. And there is a sense in which we have to expand on this idea of hospitality, but there's also a sense in which we have to be very careful that because it is a familiar word to us, we don't diminish it. When we think of hospitality, usually we think of kindness, which is shown toward friends or neighbors. But really in the ancient world, in the biblical world, and in even some senses, we might say in places outside of Western culture, Hospitality was much more than just that kindness we show to our friends. Hospitality, almost without exception, involved strangers. Hospitality, almost without exception, involved those who you didn't know. But hospitality was that which was expected to be shown. And there's a sense in which we can see in the scripture both 
generic hospitality and specific Christian hospitality. And what I want you to see in this idea of hospitality in the life of Gaius is something that I would ask you to perk your ears up to. Notice here what we have here in verse 6. I mean, I'm sorry, verse 5. He says this, Beloved, thou doest faithfully whatsoever thou doest, doest to the brethren and to strangers, which have borne witness of thy charity before the church, whom if thou bring forward on their journey after a godly sort, thou shalt do well. What I want you to see here is this, and I find this very interesting. John is not dictating to Gaius what his hospitality must look like. His hospitality is characterized, and it's characterized in some very important ways, and we're going to get to that shortly. But what I want you to see, and what I want to draw emphasis to, is that little phrase. In the King James, it's whatsoever thou doest. I think in the ESV, it's whatever you do. And what I want you to pay attention to is this. Here is Gaius as an individual with specific and individual gifts and callings and abilities, a specific nature that's unique to him, bringing all of who he is into the matter of hospitality. And maybe that meant for these itinerant ministers, oh, Gaius is going to receive us. Gaius. You know Gaius whose wife makes that wonderful bread? You know Gaius, that one who makes sure that whenever we have a place to sleep, it's the best place in his house? You know Gaius, that guy who's just full of laughter? You know Gaius who makes sure that everything we... You see, he is bringing everything that he is to the situation. And I think there is a sense in which we live out the Christian life, specifically by way of hospitality. We don't see this hard and fast set of rules that we see, we, we see these characteristics. We'll get into that. But if I can put it this way, in your exhibiting Christian hospitality and Christian charity, you can be who you are. You can be the very one that God has made you to be. You can be your good old jovial self. You can't be your kind of mean self. That would really not be hospitality. We want to make sure about that. But again, you understand, you can bring to the situation your sanctified self. Isn't that encouraging? Isn't that wonderful to know? That there is a sense in which you, as uniquely yourself, can do the work of Jesus Christ. And so again, this work of hospitality is, again, just such a significant work. And let's look at some of the ways in which, uh, again, the, the work itself is, uh, is, is characterized. And what, what, we see, um, what we see here are, again, a number of features of this um, of, of his um, of, of his um, of his hospitality. Notice what we see here again in verse five. Beloved, thou doest faithfully. The first thing that we see here is that Gaius was a man who was faithful in this calling of Christian hospitality. The itinerant preachers didn't go by and say, "Oh, okay, Gaius. Well, hopefully he's up for the task here this week. You know, hopefully he'll be able to help us out." Not Gaius. Gaius was that man who faithfully did what God enabled him to do. Gaius was that man who faithfully did what God called him to do. Gaius was that man who was exactly what God called him to be. He did it faithfully. Look, at, look what else we see here. Which had borne witness of thy charity before the church. Again, your, the, the ESV says your love. Fair enough. 
One of the things that we find interesting about this concept of charity is opposed, not as opposed, but in, um, in comparison with our word love, is that charity really doesn't have an emphasis on the emotional aspect of love. Charity has an emphasis on the, the, like the horizontal outreach of love. And so that charity is not content with just emotions. Charity is, is, is doing something for, for the sake of. And that's what's exactly happening here. It wasn't just, hey, I hope you're doing well and I hope you make out. No, uh, guys was making sure by way of specific acts of charity that their needs were met. And so it was faithful. Uh, it, it, it was charitable. Again, it was unique to himself. Whatsoever thou doest. I want you to notice here as well that it was also based on the cause and the work of Jesus Christ. This is, again, very, very important here now. Because we do have to get back into the letter, if I can put it this way. Because the hospitality that Gaius is being commended for is a hospitality that is not to be extended to all indiscriminately. Now, we have to be careful here. Because there is a sense in which the Bible calls us to a universal uh, exercise of hospitality. You have no right, I have no right, I'm challenging myself here, I have no right to turn a blind eye to a person in need. I have no right to refuse, again, when somebody comes with a, with a need in front of me. Christian hospitality bears on my conscience at that point. I'm sorry, hospitality in general bears on my conscience at that point. But there is a specifically Christian hospitality. And that Christian hospitality has certain qualifiers to it. And this is what brings us again back to uh, 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 the second epistle of John. If any man comes and preaches not this doctrine, receive him not into your house. There must be orthodoxy. Gaius was not commanded to send heretics successfully on their way. They must be individuals of personal piety. Gaius was not commanded to send uh, dissolute sinners on their way. But what Gaius was commanded to do when these men came forth bearing the truth of the gospel, having that truth witnessed in their lives, these men were to be shown Christian hospitality. And that's why when, when John says this here, in, um, when, when, jo when John says uh, this uh, in verse 6, uh, Thou doest well if, if whom if thou bring forward on their journey after a godly sort. After a godly sort. You see, not just, not just hospitality in general. But that type of hospitality, which has a particular Christian crowning to it, you see some of these features. But the other thing that I want you to see here, as I said before, it was particularly concerning the glory of Christ. We closed with this passage of scripture last week, verse 7, because that for his name's sake they went forth, taking nothing of the Gentiles. You see, all of Gaius's Christian hospitality was for the sake of the name of Jesus Christ. And that was the point uh, that he was making here. So again, there's so much more that we can say here. As I, as I said before, the idea of hospitality is just far and wide throughout the scripture. We see it as early as Genesis 18. You remember Abraham in his tent and these three strangers come. What does Abraham do? He shows them hospitality. Who is he being hospitable to? That passage in Genesis 18 is an Old Testament manifestation of the person of Christ. Abraham, in his hospitality, in one sense, is entertaining more than angels at that point. We see that whole episode uh, in David's life where, um, and, and, the, and, the, and the man's name slips me right now, the man, um, his, his name describes his character, 
he would not he would not entertain David and his troops, even though David and his troops had conducted themselves very wisely in his presence. They did not intrude in any way. And that man was very harsh and hard toward David. David responded with aggression there. And, and potentially, if it wasn't for the, the, the intercession of the man's wife, David would have taken that man's life. And the reason what we're seeing here is that was such a breach of hospitality that it was actually an offense. Do you know that even... In regard to the, to the day of judgment, and let, let me find my, my place in my notes here because I, I, I want to make sure that I bring this up. Even in regard to the day of judgment, listen, listen what you're hearing about hospitality and listen to this passage of scripture now. Matthew chapter 25, verse 35. For I was hungered and you gave me meat. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. Does that sound like anything we're talking about today? That's Hospitality. That's biblical hospitality. It is, once again, for those who are hungry, giving them something to eat. For those who are thirsty, giving them something to drink. For those who are stranger, taking them in. There was a whole, again, there was a whole, there was a whole um, uh, cultural uh, uh, con- uh, construct as to what hospitality looked like. Uh, the, 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 the visitor, in one sense, had the right, not so much by way of law, but just by way of custom, to stay in a house for three days. He was to be treated as a guest. He is to be treated very well. And when you read the, the Old Testament, and when, even when you read the New Testament, you see these things bubbling up to the surface. When the Lord Jesus Christ says as you, to the 70, when you go, take no purse with you. Take nothing with you. What do you think he's saying? He is expecting those who are hearing the message to exhibit hospitality. And if those who will not exhibit hospitality, what is that saying? Not so much about them. What's that saying about their, uh, their relationship with the truth of the gospel? They want nothing to do with it. That's why Jesus says, shake off the dust from your feet. You see, hospitality is just huge. Paul writes the letter to Romans and he closes it out. And you know what he says? I'm in the household of Gaius. Maybe a different Gaius. Probably a different Gaius. He says, but I'm in the household of Gaius. What was Gaius doing? Guys were showing hospitality. Look in the gospel accounts and how many times you find Jesus in the house of others. What's happening there? They're showing hospitality. Hospitality, as I said before, permeates the Christian ethic, ought to permeate the Christian ethic. And you see how we bring, see this brought to, the, brought to the surface, as it were, in this little epistle of 3 John. But there's one more thing that I want to bring out about this hospitality, about this concept of hospitality uh, that's very important here. What I want you to see uh, is the following, that hospitality usually would involve three types of actions. And those types of actions uh, basically are, um, those types of actions are basically the reception of a stranger, the receiving him, and the sending him, and the sending on his way. The reception of the stranger, the receiving him, and then sending him on his way. And what's interesting is that these are the very things that we find John instructing Gaius to continue to do. Notice what we see here in the passage. Beloved, thou doest faithfully whatsoever thou doest to the brethren and to strangers. Now, there's two ways of looking at this. This may be two sets of individuals, or it may be those itinerant preachers who are not only brothers in Christ, but they're strangers just because, Gaius, you don't know them. And the word stranger here is a word that we that kind of has kind of come over into our uh, in, into our public uh, kind of use of language, and it's the word xenos. And you might know the word by way of xenophobia. Well, the word here, and I, I might butcher it in the Greek here, but the word here for this entertaining of strangers is philozenios. It's the love of strangers. 
And the love of strangers was not only to be the mark of, of men in ministry, the love of strangers was to be the mark of the people of God at large. And so what, what John is saying to guys is that you do well to receive these strangers. But that second word receive is important too. Because it has the concept, again, of not just kind of getting close to them, but keeping them at an arm's length. No, they were really incorporated into whatever that structure, whatever that family or church unit was. It was an incorporate. Now, again, they were still guests in one sense. But again, the openness to them and the, and the willingness to, them, to embrace them became, it took on that nature. But the third thing that we see here is, is this. Where where Paul where, excuse me where um where where John says in verse six whom if thou bring forward on their journey after a godly sort the idea of bringing forward literally means to to send them on and when he says to send them on after a godly sort again the the, the Christian emphasis is manifest here but the idea is essentially this make sure when these guys go on that they have enough by way of food, by way of substance, by way of whatever they may need to get to the next town, to get to their next point of travel. That is the responsibility and the duty of the Christian. So here we see this man, the beloved Gaius. Maybe more than what you wanted to know, but I hope not. <laughs> A lot of information here concerning Gaius. But what I want to do now is I want to ask you the question. What does Gaius look like today? What does Gaius look like in our midst. Well, one thing we have to say is that Gaius is that man. Last week, what did we say about him? He was a supporter of the truth. So that's what Gaius looks like in our day. He knows the truth. He understands it from falsehood. He embraces the truth. He internalizes the truth. He lives out the truth. That's, that's Gaius in our day. I trust that there are a church full of Gaiuses here today. But what else do we see about Gaius? Gaius brought his whole person to the matter of hospitality in his own unique way. I have to admit, this is one of my favorite points in this, in this sermon. Gaius, uniquely as Gaius, doing the work of hospitality. Look around. Every one of our faces is different. And every, and every one of the ways in which we can administer a hospitality could be as different as who and what we are, but it can still be genuinely the work of God. You don't have to be wrapped into a straitjacket to do what God is calling you to do here. So what we see in Gaius then is this, this man who is committed to the truth. And that reminds us of another man who is committed to the truth. And that man was Jesus Christ. And if Gaius did so much for the cause of the truth, oh, how much more did Jesus Christ do for the cause of the truth? You see, the cause of the truth being the reality of my sin before a holy God and the truth of the gospel being that God is willing to forgive sinners through faith in Jesus Christ. So committed to the cause was he that he went to the cross with that cause. I don't know why I was thinking of this this morning, but in my, in my mind, when we, as we were driving out, Elizabeth was driving, we're driving out, and I'm thinking of that, that episode in the gospel where Jesus Christ, under the weight of the cross, falls down. I thought to myself, what a true picture of his humanity. But then see him on the cross bearing the full weight, not of the weight of a wooden stake or cross, but bearing the full weight of my sin and your sin. That's what he did. 
for the sake of the truth. If Christ has done that, brothers and sisters, the last question, what will you do for the sake of the truth? Let us at least be hospitable. Let us take up the gospel on our lips. Let us internalize it and let us live it out. And may in those very acts, may the name of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the name, may go far and wide from this place. And may individuals in this community hear that there is a God who is still saving, a God who is still able to save the worst of sinners. Let's pray. Our Father, how we thank you and we praise you for this man Gaius, but we thank you and praise you even more that there is such a thing as truth and that the truth made this man what he was and that the truth, Father, ultimately all comes back to who and what you are and that the truth of the gospel has now come home to our hearts through the work of Christ and through the work of the Spirit. And we ask and we pray now, Lord God, that we too would take up the sake of the name in our lives, in our setting, in the time that we have. Grant that to us, we pray, Father, that we might be something of a guidance to those that we come in contact with. And we ask and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.